Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is June 1st, 2020. We are halfway, near, nearly, ne- nearly halfway into the year. Honestly, the more I do this, the more self-conscious I get about how I pronounce and enunciate words i'm trying to get better at it and i've realized that i've been rather lazy and tardy with how i speak or just say certain words so i'm trying to get better please bear with me but yeah so today what what did i learn today well a good chunk of the day was actually spent um, doing a book review of one of the books that i had read and the theme that I wanted to hit upon was just on the art of learning, which also happens to be the title of the book that I reviewed, but I just couldn't think of a better way to, to actually say it. And so this book is called The Art of Learning, An Inner Journey to Optimal Performance by Josh Waitzkin. And the reason I picked this book, I read this, I read it originally sometime, I want to say, near the end of last year or the latter half of last year, and I'm trying to build some kind of system to get on top of all the books I'd read, and trying to actually review them, write review, not really reviews, but book notes on it, and I, I haven't really found a good system, like I, the, the result is that uh, it could be my lack of discipline on it, really, there's really no excuse, but I'm trying to I'm aiming to review one book a week, and since I read a book every two weeks, I'm hoping I can catch up on this huge backlog I have of probably, like, I think my book list has some hundred plus books, but I think the evolution of my reading is that I've only started taking in-depth marginalia notes um, maybe in the last two years or so, so that limits my backlog to something about 50 books that I can just kind of look through and pull out all the notes and thoughts I had. So yeah, that's kind of the backdrop. And so today I decided, okay, you know, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to review a book and what better book to look up than The Art of Learning because I'm kind of in the period of continuously learning of obviously um, investing, but also learning about calisthenics, um, like I kind of ranted about the last few episodes. And so I thought that's also probably a pretty solid way to incorporate the frameworks into my physical training. But also, I I have this desire to learn um, drums, or learn how to play the drums. And I've looked up some beginner YouTube videos and thought about, okay, should I should I kind of take that leap or am I trying to do too much here? So I haven't decided yet, but that's something I want to take on for the near future as well. So this kind of became the book that I want to look into. And so today's episode, I'll just be kind of 
going through some high-level points I pulled out from what I learned in the book. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Josh Waitzkin, just kind of a quick background. He was a child chess prodigy. Um, he became, I think, a chess grandmaster relatively early. He won the world championship. Um, he is famous as like the inspiration for the movie Chasing Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer uh, was also a grandmaster who defeated the undefeated Russian team for um, during this kind of Cold War era, and Josh is kind of, and Josh has kind of used this kind of learning system that he had to adapt to martial arts, where he won I think the world championship in Tai Chi push hands, and then he adapted to uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, where he became um, I think. A black belt for sure. I don't know if he became world champion. I'm not too sure about that. Because um, the book kind of ends while he is in his uh, BJJ journey. But I I first learned about Josh Waitzkin after listening to all his interviews on Tim Ferriss. He rarely does interviews. And so anytime he comes on Tim Ferriss, I just really just go hard on all the podcast episodes. I've probably listened to all his episodes at least three times each. And by how I can't really particularly remember whether he won a BJJ championship, you can tell that that's not really a big focal point for me. I'm not really too, I don't really care too much about that. But long story short, he practically is a someone who can become a world champion in practically any sport he kind of desires to uh, take part in. And the big reason I started getting really fascinated about uh, Josh Waitzkin is because he he is also a coach to various high performers um, in like athletics, business, and finance. Like I think a lot of hedge funds um, are his clients. And for me, he kind of is someone who lives the life that I want. Um, he spends all his time doing physical training, trying to become a high performer, f- building systems, helping coaching people um, to become better. And he does this all while living in somewhat of a remote, reclusive lifestyle. So there's a lot of what he does that I... I aspire to have and so it only made sense for me to start reading his book on it as well and as I, and I'd say the book is kind of a mix between a biography and kind of a, a journal of experiments he did on his journey in mainly chess and martial arts those are the two areas I'd say he focuses his time on and so a lot of I think the early parts of the the book are kind of focused on the biography um, of his kind of development in chess, per se. And so... Sorry about that. Um, But yeah, so those developments, I think, were interesting and it's kind of more nicer on like a personal note to kind of understand where Josh came from, kind of his... And you're kind of going through his early childhood years, like, because he started playing chess since he was like seven or something um and my overall the way i'd say in a one sentence summary what the book is is it's learning bottom-up tactics and strategies for optimal performance from a chess grandmaster turned world champion martial artist um that's kind of literally what the book is about if i were to rate the book um as i've reviewed it this time i'd say it was super enjoyable um but not a seminal thing like it's not going to be a perennial book that I continuously review every year there are a few books that I do that with um particular they I guess they change that 
I have some perennial books based on subject matter, let's say. Um, like, for example, Investing, it's Phil Fisher's book. Um, if I think about, I, I think, Why We Sleep, which I recently finished with by Matthew Walker, might actually be one I continuously look at for working on my sleep, working on my health in general. And there are a couple like Ryan Holiday's entire series of Obstacles to Way, Ego is the Enemy, that I love reading over and over again. Um, I think Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss and Tribe of Mentors are possible easy reads that I continue to sometimes look through. Poor Charlie's Almanac is as a perennial one where I'll just reread the entire kind of speech that he gives because he has 11 speeches in there. Um, I'll just pick one and reread it. So there's those are the kind of books that I'd say are kind of perennial for me. And this one isn't in that bucket, I'd say, although it has very interesting learnings I'll kind of dig into now. Um, I think the big things I'll talk about. Let's see. How should I tackle this? So I'll, I'll actually talk about various concepts that Josh recommends to just become a top performer. One particular concept is on learning to lose. Like you actually want to create a process where you get familiar with learning, uh, familiar with losing. And one is because when you lose, it becomes an opportunity for growth. Like you have to make a mistake and that's how you figure out where your blind spots and your holes were. But another is because it actually adds a healthy perspective to the game. Um, because if you've always won and always kind of been this dominant player, when you actually hit that mental kind of point of realizing you're going to lose on a chessboard, it can be a really hard thing to recover from. And so you actually want to create this, you can even call it slack in your system where you are used to losing so that when you ever feel like you're in that kind of position, you don't get frazzled by it. Which actually leads into the uh, next point, which is on um, actually being aware of this kind of panic, this fear that sets into you and how this is something that you should learn to embrace um, and some ta- some techniques he recommends is like when you're like when he played chess, he used to take every time he had an opponent that created the, some kind of move or position that frazzled his strategy, um, he found that he would always kind of fall in this death spiral, this negative loop of despair, fear, anxiety, etc. because things were not going as planned. And this can really happen for people who tend to be hyper-systematic. So what he does is he take three deep breaths to kind of disassociate from the situation. And this is what he also recommends for any situation that seems like, you know, a wrench has been thrown into your expectations, um, whether it be in life, whether it be in career, like, you know, whether I think other examples that kind of come up into mind is like, if you got fired from a job and you just never expected you'd get fired, like that's probably a wrench in your system. Um, COVID is probably a wrench in your system. And these things can lead to this negative despair zone, but you have to use that, um, opportunistically and so one way is to first disassociate yourself and that can be you know splashing water on your face taking deep breaths meditating these are all methods to try to get yourself out of that mind space um and so you can look at it from kind of outside inward so it's like that you know surreal body out of body experience people have where you can kind of imagine looking at yourself from 
out of your body. I think that's kind of what Josh is alluding to. And that leads to the next step of actually using that as an opportunity to become better. Um, and I think this would actually be a good segue to, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. Um, I'd highly recommend, if you're curious, to go to my show notes at omdventures.com to look at the entire kind of book note article that I wrote out. I kind of go by chapter by chapter and the key quotes and learnings I had from it. But kind of going back to the main point, um, let's see, what was I going to talk about? This is why I sometimes think I should get a co-founder. Or not co-founder, but a co-host, so they can kind of keep me on track. Um, you know what, I, I forget. I shouldn't have gone on a tangent, that's my bad. Oh, actually I remember now. Yeah, so back to using these obstacles as a way um, to improve you. So you receive the obstacle, your system breaks, and then you you disassociate by um, changing your frame of mind, change your environment, take a deep breath, meditate, all that. And then the idea is to realize this is kind of the opportunity to invert. And the quote that comes in the book that I think is awesome is, so this is what the quote in the book says. In most everyday life experiences, there seems to be a tangible connection between opposites. Heartbreaking gives the greatest insight into the value of love. Sickness is the most potent ambassador for healthy living. Who knows what are like a man dying of thirst. And this really reminded me of what Charlie Munger talks about. And and that's the idea of inverting. Um, and he talks about how, you know, he only wished, like, he one of his wishes is that he just know where he would go to die so or where he would die so that he would know not to ever go there that that's the idea of inverting and this can be utilized where you have this kind of obstacle and if you actually dissociate yourself from it you can actually use it as a way to kind of invert and use that as a way to figure out what um you really value and that can come out in life that can come out in your career like this covid period could have help to realize what you actually cherished, what you actually valued. Um, and this is something that can be utilized, I think, even in, uh, like, maybe even in the real-life schema of chess, um, like, immediately while you're playing the game. Although it's really harder for me to relate because I haven't really had that kind of experience personally, but I could see it possibly in investing where if you lose, you know, if you have this stock go down 50%, and once again, COVID was can actually lead to that with the financial market hitting that huge bear market zone. If that were to happen, then that could actually reveal a lot of things about you and a lot of things about the position, like whether you really should have made that big of a weight uh, to that investment in your portfolio, what investment thesis you had or lack thereof, and how that thesis broke um, in this kind of environment. And that also reveals a lot about who you are as an investor. So I think that's actually a pretty interesting way to think about um, continuously trying to master your craft. And on the topic of mastery, some I think I generally think chapter eight of the book is probably one of my favorite chapters. Like I personally gathered the most insight from it. And one particular part that I really loved was 
when Josh was comparing us to chess coaches. So I'm totally going to butcher their names. So one coach was Yuri Razuvayev, and the other was Mark Dovoretsky. I hope I pronounced it right. But um, they had very two contrasting coaching styles. So I'll use their first names because it's easy. So Yuri, Yuri's style was um, kind of, he just, Josh describes it as kind of like a spiritual retreat where Yuri really focused on understanding each student's personality and just kind of the nature of their chess predispositions, as he would say. Um, it was much more focused on the psychology of the student, what really drove them, um, what their nature really was. And Yuri told Josh that his nature as a player was an attacking style, which actually was very contrasting to, I think, the chess masters that Josh had grown up studying. Like, I think Karpov was one of them, where the kind of more, I guess, socially accepted or revered uh, position uh, chess players at the time were kind of more very defensive and they're very calm and they kind of waited for the moment to strike um, after the opponent made a blunder, whereas Josh's nature, according to Yuri, was very attacking. Like, you were constantly attacking your opponent's positions and you're not really sitting back and relaxing. And Yuri actually recommended Josh to embrace that and to actually focus on owning up to that. Whereas um, Mark was a different kind of coach where Mark was more of a top-down coach where he had this whole kind of comprehensive training system and he just wanted students to kind of fit into it. And that kind of would work with the law of large, large numbers where if Mark had, you know, hundreds of students and if only one of them fit his system but they thrived in it, then they could actually become like a grandmaster level. Um, but 99 others would kind of be failed by Mark. And so his system was to kind of create this extremely difficult chess moves and kind of destroy the spirit of his students. And only the ones that could actually win, uh, overcome that would actually thrive. But it was more so his way or the highway. That was kind of Mark's style. And one is that uh, Mark's style would have a negative consequence on a lot of young up-and-coming chess players that would actually dissuade them, possibly. And Yuri's would actually focus on honing each individual chess player's strength. But I think overall, if I were to think of it as, you know, if you had a company, how would you want to run a company? You would most likely want to run it with Yuri's style, where... You actually want each individual to thrive and be successful in their own way. And that actually requires you to start coaching people on a bottom-up basis to figure out how do they operate, what is their operating system, what is their kind of you know wiring to say. And there's a lot of nature related to that. Um, that I felt that was a very fascinating uh, view of learning and even thinking about coaching in general because that's kind of a topic that I've always been very fascinated by. And it was also cool to see how Josh had these two different coaching coaches and he eventually gravitated towards Yuri. And further on, Yuri, I think, recommended to Josh that he should focus on studying people that were like him, which remi- reminded me of um, my early, when I was um, earlier on in my investing career where I was learning about different investors and 
people tend to recommend that oh you should study people who have opposite styles of you as you so that you don't conform to just kind of confirmation bias and so that you don't always kind of hang around people that are like you but in one way i feel the people that who give that kind of advice are people who have in one way kind of already made it like they've achieved a, a form of greatness and to become even better you study the opposites but when you're actually getting there um when you're just kind of starting out with nothing i think you actually should try to find people who are like-minded and who have a kind of quote unquote nature similar to you whether it's as an investor whether it's um as an as- uh, athlete or an entrepreneur and actually trying to learn about their way of looking at the world and what they've actually gone through and actually trying to embrace that into your own psyche and your own journey because i think that can probably tell you more um, you can learn more from their journey particularly if they are like-minded people like yourself so that's something i definitely took away um and that's how josh shifted his chess uh, learning as well where he would actually focus on learning about very attacking heavy style players and actually using that to learn other styles as a result because you'd learn from the mistakes of people who are like you and you can see their blind spots more clearly because you have all this benefit of hindsight. And so that's definitely got me thinking more about how I look at investors and who I should follow. Um like to be honest, I've been further more gravitating away from like Warren Buffett's style of investing and although I still love learning from him, um I think I'm learning to also find and use my own way of investing and gravitating towards other investors who look at companies in a similar uh lens as I do. So that's also been an interesting development as well because I've found myself pulling away from what modern day invest um financial, you know, community or finance community would call the super investors and not really feeling that I resonated with many of them. Like I'd say about to kind of name a few like Tom Russo would be someone I actually resonate with and Terry Smith would be someone I resonate with and I realized a lot of the people that I like to look at are um what I guess the investing community would call quote unquote growth investors um like other people are like you know Rob Vanell, Michael Shearn, Brian Bears, um Josh Tarasov, all these very quote unquote qualitative focused investors and that's kind of the person I am. So that's also been an interesting development and it's pretty cool to hear um Josh's perspective on finding people to emulate and finding people to learn from who focus on your style as well. Um What else is important? In chapter 12 he talks about uh, I think this kind of sums up a lot of um key learnings. So there's three critical steps in a resilient performer's evolving relationship to chaotic situations. First, we have to learn to be at peace with imperfection and the image that he uses is kind of the image of a blade of grass bending to hurricane force winds con- in contrast to a brittle twig that snaps under pressure. That reminds me of um being anti-fragile. That's kind of the first a uh, critical step to try to embrace um the coming situation try to i think bend with it instead of trying to resist it so that's kind of like accepting change so that's the first thing to 
becoming a high performer during these chaotic situations that can actually result in someone becoming um, even better than they were because, you know, thriving on using, uh, I guess, chaos as an opportunity to thrive further is a big opportunity. So that's the first part. The second part is we learn to use that imperfection to advantage using a shaking world as a catalyst for insight, kind of what I alluded to. Um, the third step of the process is to learn to create ripples in our consciousness, little jolts to spur us along so we're constantly inspired whether or not external conditions are inspiring. A deep mastery of performance psychology involves the internal creation of inspiring conditions. And so I think I interpreted this as a way of constantly trying to create uh, small wins, kind of little triggers to continuously keep the momentum going. And that's something I'm not particularly good at. There's a part of me, I think, where it's really hard to celebrate small wins. I try to do it and I'm told I should do it more, but it's one of those things where it just doesn't seem very intuitive for me. doesn't mean I'm not going to work at it, but it just doesn't seem as easy as people make it sound at least. But yeah, that's something I know I have to work on over time. Um, What else? One, uh, another concept that he talks about, which I think was pretty powerful for another investing model, is relational value. Basically, it's the idea of um, you study the individual object bottom up. So, like for example, you study Bishop. Uh, if you, it, yeah, it's like kind of chess analogy, and you just kind of try to understand um, first of all what the role of a bishop is, and then you use it in relation to a structure, like if you have a whole pawn structure um, or you use, you compare a bishop compared to like a knight and then you have this relational value um, so that you solely try to take away the rigidity of the value that each um, piece actually has. So I think like the, when you first learn chess, they kind of give you a value system. Like if pawn is a value of one, then they say like a bishop is worth three pawns, a rook is worth five pawns, something like that. So then a lot of young chess players will do all this mental math and try to kind of calculate, like if I made this decision and added this trade-off, am I actually getting value or not? And it reminds me of the old kind of quantitative value uh, investing style where you're calculating all these net nets and trying to see how much value you're getting in the company by just subtracting, you know, like current assets to current liabilities or current assets to like total liabilities and seeing how what the valuation is left over compared to the market cap. And there's a bit of rigidity there, which reminds me of the kind of quantitative value investing. Um, and in this way, Josh is talking about if you learn to look at everything in relation, which reminds me of Charlie Munger's way of looking at investing, where he uses opportunity costs um, as a way to, as a proxy for his discount rate. Because everyone asks Charlie how he discounts companies, and he always refers to the idea of um, putting each investment in relativity to your next best opportunity. And I think this is a way of actually looking at uh, relational value between various uh, companies. And Josh goes on to say that the stronger chess player is often the one who is less attached to a dogmatic interpretation of the principles. This leads to a whole new layer of principles, those that consist of the exceptions to the initial principles. And I think this is where, yeah, like you create a new kind of value system that continuously evolves and continuously takes place um, outside of set rules. 
And I think that's important because chess itself um, can be described as a fixed environment, a fixed game where you have a set of rules and you still play within a parameter um, of all the possible kind of uh, playing strategies. But investing or your career or just life in general is more what um, Jeffrey uh, David Epstein calls the wicked environment in his um, I forget what his, the title of his book is, but he there's, he contrasts fixed and wicked environment where fixed environment is kind of more like a set sports game with rules and parameters like chess. And a wicked environment is one where you have constantly different variables changing the possible outcome. And you can't really redo it because that's not how life works. It's not like a sports game where you get to kind of redo or kind of play a completely different game. Um, just like how poker can have many, many different hands. But life doesn't work that way. It just continuously compounds on the results that have happened. Um, But even then, I mean, I think because um, life and investing is more like a wicked wicked environment, relational value becomes even more imperative because you're constantly um, forced to kind of reevaluate the rules based on the constant change that you're seeing as a result of various variables targeting like a company. And so, you know, Facebook and Google will, compared to each other like 15 years ago is not the same comparing each other now. And there's a different kind of relational value um, attached to it, but you have to constantly be flexible enough to look at them in a different way. So that was also a very key learning I adapted. Um, And I think that's kind of, oh, I'll kind of end with uh, creating triggers. I thought this was interesting. So, when Josh competed in uh, martial arts, he, I think, had an Eminem song uh, created as a trigger. So anytime he heard the song or if he hummed it, he could go into this intense uh, focus. And the way he talks about creating triggers is to kind of cr- already um, use, an, use an activity that already kind of creates similar emotions of focus or happiness or something. Um, so one example he uses is, uh, I think this guy like Dennis or something or Dave has like, you know, great emotions, happiness, and focus when he plays catch with the sun. And so then Josh recommends you add a series of triggers ahead of that event that he had at night. So then, you know, it could be 10 minutes of meditating, listening to a Bob Dylan song, taking, uh, eating a snack. And so these are three triggers that um, Dave would do before playing catch with the sun every day for weeks. And then he would reuse that trigger before like major meetings before work so that he would um his mind would believe that those three activities are related to this emotion of focus and happiness and so that when he actually does his presentation he can actually exude that kind of emotional state um that he would have when he would you know play catch with the sun so that got me thinking about some activities that where i have just un comparably in amount of like high focus where I just completely lose track time and that's when I'm in playing um, video games like I rarely play games is because I get super addicted to them but the reason I also don't want to play them is because I know when I start playing um, like a first person shooter game time just completely passes by for me and I can spend hours on it and I won't even know I can actually say that for TV shows as well but actually trying to use those and trying to create triggers ahead of doing those events so that I can actually use those to 
create a trigger to engage in deep work. So that's something I'm currently trying to experiment with. I'll let you know in the future if that actually works out, but that's something I thought was interesting in actually forcibly creating triggers for yourself to focus. But yeah, that's, I'd say, um, a good chunk of the learnings I had. There's definitely way more. Um, I think I only covered maybe 25% of the learning. So if you're interested, please check it out on my blog, my website at omdventures.com, the book reviews and on the blog tab, as well as the OMD daily tab. So check it out and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope this was somewhat interesting and insightful for you. All right, take care.